opening guest for this season has been so prolific that for several years, I actually thought he was two people. First, there's Dr. D. Montgomery, the geomorphologist from the University of Washington, whose name is on so much of the seminal high-gradient channel transport and classification literature. And then there's David Montgomery, the narrative nonfiction author from Seattle who wrote books like Dirt and The Rocks Don't Lie and The Hidden Half of Nature. It actually took me an embarrassing amount of time to realize that this was the same person. So the first time I sat down to scribble a list of guests that I'd like to invite on a yet-to-be-named River Process podcast, Dr. David Montgomery was on that first list, because who wouldn't want to talk to both of these people, especially at the same time? In this conversation, David and I move between the spatial and temporal scales that his work spans, discussing the deep sediment history from his books and his classical technical work. We cover the role of sediment on the rise and fall of ancient Near Eastern civilizations, high gradient river classification, a surprising story about the long temporal tale of large woody debris impacts, incipient motion at the grain scale, and somehow a range of other topics. And I found out that there's actually a third David Montgomery, guitar and vocals for the Seattle band Big Dirt. So the music you're going to hear the rest of this recording is from their new album. I'm Stanford Gibson from the Corps of Engineers Hydrologic Engineering Center, and we are kicking off Season 3 of the RSM River Mechanics Podcast, Scale Shifting Between Mesopotamian Civilization and Particle Physics, with a fun thematic soundtrack in a conversation with Dr. David Montgomery. David Montgomery, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. So, how did the relative timing of the hydrographs and setographs in Mesopotamia and Egypt affect the longevity of those civilizations? You know, it was one of those things that I was really kind of intrigued by right. in writing dirt was how important that turned out to be in looking at what the history of, of salinization in particular in Mesopotamia versus on the Nile. Now, they're both early agricultural civilizations, but they got their water from really different places. So in Mesopotamia, they got it from snowmelt, spring snow, snowmelt in the Zagros Mountains, I think is the source of most of it, if I'm remembering my geography right. But they did their farming in the lowlands on the t- floodplains of the Tigris and Euphrates through the summer and then into the fall. So the water was available in the spring, but they needed to grow plants in the summer and the fall. So they did a lot of early season irrigation, which meant a lot of water evaporated on the fields. So the the hydrograph was out of phase with the growing season. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I meant to say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so, and what that contributed to is a lot of salinization on those floodplains in the, the Bronze Age, sort of early agricultural ages. So, so I'm not an irrigation guy. And so th- this part of your book, and this is your book, Dirt, this part of your book was kind of new to me. What's salinization and why does that come from being out of phase with the hydrograph? Yeah, so salinization is what you get if you basically have water that evaporates will leave behind whatever load of dissolved material, the solutes. So in that part of the world, it's a lot of salt. So if you're basically bringing a lot of water that has a lot of solutes onto your fields and you're letting a lot of it evaporate to then still have a little bit of water left for the growing season, you're basically pumping salt into the soil. And you can also get salinization, you know, just salting up of the soil. If you have a groundwater table that is raised and gets close to the surface, so you get a whole lot of capillary pressure bringing water up into the soil where it evaporates, 
you can enhance the salt load as well. And the contrast with the Nile was interesting because in the Nile, this runoff is sourced down in equatorial Africa from you know one branch of the Nile, I forget which one, has a whole lot of organic matter dissolved in it, so it's got a lot of organic acids in it. And the other branch has more sediment in it. So the Nile would deliver high flows that were in the fall, sort of right in the growing season, that were perfectly timed to basically do on-time irrigation so you could use just the amount of water that it took to grow the crop. You didn't have to bulk up the water and the soil to make it last all through the Iraqi summer. So along the Nile, you didn't have the salinization problem. Instead, you had the delivery of organic matter and sediment recipe for fertility. So the, the you know the productivity on the Nile was pretty much maintained in the face of you know all the other erosive aspects of farming practices I wrote about in dirt. In the Nile, they were able to maintain it until they built the S1 high dam. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, they choked off the sediment <laughs> supply to the Nile Delta, which was what was keeping them in business and agriculture. So there are different problems in those different areas, but the ones in Mesopotamia were manifest way earlier. And you see that in the records of like the, the crops they were harvesting. It went from salt-intolerant crops, like early wheats, to eventually they were growing mostly barley, which may have you know some implications for the history of beer that I yeah. haven't fully researched. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> but you can see the change as yeah. their soil was degraded and got salty. They had to switch what they were growing. And so in Mesopotamia, you have these rises and falls. They're sometimes attributed to climate or new weaponry, or, but there's a lot of rises and falls on the lake century scale in Mesopotamia. But one of the things you argue in your book is that it's actually the irrigation, which is a short-term way to build population, but a long-term recipe for disaster. Yeah, and then also the tie to soil erosion once you get farming out of the floodplains. Uh, but in yeah. Mesopotamia and Egypt, you're talking floodplains. Yeah. So yeah, salinization was a really big... Salinization and the supply of replenishment of soil nutrients from the irrigation water that were really the sort of the big drivers. And if, if you look at kind of the, the long wavelength periodicity to the rise and fall of civilizations, you know, the argument I make in dirt is that the state of the land, the state of the soil was what was sort of setting the long wavelength periodicity. But it's not like soil erosion itself wiped out civilizations. Right, right. It set the stage for things like the next drought, yeah. things like those pesky neighbors yeah, that invaded, or yeah. those kind of the things we read about in history that you know, sort of the, the final chapter in civilizations. But what set the stage for that is what I was really intrigued by in writing Dirt. And so on the flip side, in Mesopotamia, you have these practices that lead to soil erosion. You're literally losing the land. You know, the opposite. In Egypt, is that the rivers? It's building <laughs> land because the agriculture is timed with both, not just the hydrograph but the setograph. Yeah, and and if you look at the early arrival of agriculture in both the Delta in Mesopotamia and in the Egyptian Delta, I mean, you can connect it to the rise of sea level, changing oh, the way that sediment's interacting with the marine body, the way base level is working at a oh, large no scale. Way. So that if you look at like immediately post glacial, most of the big river valleys around the world, you know, were not deltas. They were not full of sediment. They were more like the Chesapeake Bay, which is still oh, filling with sediment. But once the once sea level stabilized, it allowed you know the sediment that made it out of these big river systems started piling up and building out and building these big landforms. There weren't a lot of big deltas around at the end of the last ice age. But by, you know, what was it, about 6,000 years ago to 6,000 mm-hmm. B.C., something in that kind of a time frame, sea level stabilized. And that's the right time period. And that's the right time yeah. period. And what it created was a new kind of, what sedimentation created was a new kind of habitat that didn't have top-level carnivores. Oh, interesting. Right? Guess who moved in? 
Interesting. So we were omnivores, we, you know, and we moved in, started using that, those you know, very biologically productive landscapes, and they were also good places to farm. So post-glacial sediment processes created a niche for humans. It set the stage for the rise of sort of large, complex civilizations through agriculture. Now, agriculture was also adopted in other parts of, course, of the world yeah. and so forth. But those early hydraulic civilizations that developed in deltaic environments, I mean, what set the stage for that was really the development. You had to have a delta for there to be delta farming. Yeah. <laughs> and that was something that was really governed by the post-glacial base-level response and then the sedimentation building deltas out into marine bodies. That's fantastic. Oh, wait, so I, I want to talk more about that. But <laughs> this might be the only podcast that's actually more interested in your technical geomorphology <laughs> than your popular work. You've written six popular books, but you've also done a lot of really important technical work, some things that have been really influential to me. So let's deal with that next, and then we'll come back to the book. Sure, sure. We'll see how much that I remember. One of the papers you're most famous for is a classification system of high-gradient rivers. Oh, man. What are the major types of high-gradient rivers? If you sort of go down a typical profile from yeah. a hilltop down through into a, uh, a hillslope hollow or a colluvial hollow and then right into where streams start, the first kind of channel you'll probably step in is a colluvial channel. Okay. And those were named after the recognition that colluvial processes, hillslope processes, you know, not processes governed by stream flow are the ones that are really shaping the morphology you would see if you just walked up to it and that occasionally get wiped out, you know, cleaned out by debris flows or big floods. But they're they're not terribly fluvial in the yeah. sense of what's shaping them. Uh, and then if you go downstream from that, you'd run into cascade channels and step pool channels and plain bed channels and pool and riffle channels. And then if you get down to the sandy, you go through the gravel sand transition, you're into yeah. more what we call dune ripple channels, sort of classic large-scale alluvial rivers. And that's sort of the, the typical sequence that I noticed that you kind of see all over the world with different influences and constraints. Like yeah, if you right. have a lot of wood in your channels, it can change things around a bit because yeah. the wood can then have a dominant effect of morphology. Or if the channels are too steep and you have a lot of stream power, there may not be any alluvium in the bed and you'd have a bedrock channel or, or very thin bars and not much alluvium. But that's the basic suite of, of channel types that John Buffington and I sort of started to recognize around yeah. the Northwest and realize that they're actually common in a lot of upland landscapes. That classification is not terribly useful for lowland landscapes because right. everything looks the same through <laughs> yeah, right, that lens, right? Right, right. right. It's um, all that, that fifth category. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, exactly, yeah. which is a huge one That's in, right. in low-gradient parts of the yeah. world. But for mountain river systems, it seems to work pretty well, pretty robustly. We hypothesized that it was those morphologies reflect the balance between the sediment transport capacity of the channel and the amount of sediment supply it receives. You know, to first order, that seems to be pretty reasonable. You mapped it onto Dr. Shum's conceptual model of sources, pathways, and sinks, essentially. They're yeah, because that's a pretty good, you know, gross-level characterization of a drainage basin. you got sources in the upland, wherever the headwaters right. are. The middle part, sediment's moving along, getting from where it was eroded to the outlet, and then sinks where it all piles up. And so then you identified some of them as supply-limited and some of them as capacity-limited. Could you just kind of define those terms for us and then tell us how that maps onto your categories? Yeah, so the basic idea is that we're looking at it in terms of the alluvial bed morphologies reflecting a degree of sorting and working on the sediment supply. Uh, Essentially, you can think of it as winnowing away the finest stuff and reorganizing the stuff that's left behind as the bed material. Because you look at most mountain streams and you look at what's dominating the sediment flux, 
it's not what you see on the bed, <laughs> right? That's right. It's That's mostly right. finer stuff. Uh, and you look at the average composition of a hill slope soil. And say, say you're in a soil-mantled landscape yeah. where the material that gets into streams is being weathered out of the rocks, being converted into soil, and then getting into the streams. If you look at the average soil composition, you know, it's silt, sand, and clay. It's pretty fine-grained stuff. That's There's right. not a lot of gravel in it. Then you go down and look at the stream, <laughs> and, you know, it's a bunch of pile of gravel. Where does so, this come from? Right. So there's a whole lot of sorting that goes on. Yeah. The part that John and I tried to really frame through that classification was that you can kind of think of these different channel types as representing a morphologic uh, manifestation of that relative balance or imbalance mm-hmm. between sediment supply and transport capacity. So if you get up to the headwater channels where you're, uh, you know, downslope of the colluvial channels, because yeah, right. those... They're, they're weird. They're, they're weird. Yeah. And they're, you know, mostly fine-grained. And yeah. you can think of them, though, as places where the fluvial transport capacity is less than the supply of stuff coming in from the hillsides. Mm-hmm. So you get the fine stuff sticks around and piles up. But once you get down into things like the cascade channels, you've accumulated enough drainage areas so you have a discharge that's capable of basically filtering through and removing a lot of stuff. So it's got a high ability to transport relative to the amount of stuff it's getting. And as you go further down the system and the gradients decline, even though the discharge is going up, uh, you're essentially losing, losing relative transport capacity relative to the sediment supply because even though your discharge is going up, so are your number of sediment sources. Mm-hmm. And that was an idea that John and I came up with together and, and kind of looked at and thought, you know, this, this kind of makes sense. Well, and, and we framed it out. We cast it mostly initially in terms of drainage area and slope. Drainage area could be a surrogate for sediment supply. Sure. And drainage area and slope together are kind of a surrogate for transport capacity, yeah, discharge sure. or stream power. So we kind of ran with that, and it seems to be a reasonable kind of first-order conceptualization, kind of like Stan Shum's idea of the source transport and sink reaches. We were trying to basically put sort of a pseudo-mechanistic yeah, way sure. of thinking about how to look at these different channel morphologies mm-hmm. that appear to have some generality in terms of, you can use the same classification in a lot of different mountain systems mm-hmm. yes. with a lot of different lithologies. So what is it that's shaping it? Yeah. It's not that it's a mountain or that it's a lithology. It's, it, and we argued that it was that balance between transport capacity and sediment supply, which uh, on a conceptual level I think is pretty good. One of the things that I noticed in most of your literature surrounding this is you use a phrase, you, you call it a process-based classification system. Why is it a process-based classification system, and what is that distinguishing it from? Yeah, what we, we basically argued is that because of this hypothesized relationship to the relative balance of sediment supply and transport capacity, that the classification is rooted in the processes that are shaping the channel. Now, a purely morphologic classification would be something like where if you have a, a form that you might give mm-hmm. a... Uh, alphanumeric code to, for example, and say, oh, this looks like that, therefore it is this. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting in geomorphology is is the concept of equifinality. You can have different processes can give you the same ultimate form. And so if you just classify something based on its form, you may not be necessarily capturing information that would be useful for predicting how it might respond to something. And that's where a process basis helps to give you that characterization. So if you think a channel has a high relative transport capacity, for example, then say you were to take a dam out Mm -hmm. and think about what's happening to all that sediment. Where will it go? How fast? You know, it depends on the nature of the channel it's going into. And if it has a high relative transport capacity, it ought to shunt that onto the next channel fairly quickly. And if it has a lower transport capacity, it'll hang out and it'll take longer to disperse that sediment wave. And that's where I see the real distinction between a morphologic classification that says this looks like that and a process-based one. Now, 
the trick that I was really kind of happy with with the 97 Montgomery Buffington classification mm-hmm. is it looks like the morphologies actually reflect the process balance, which means you can kind of go, oh, this looks like that, therefore it's going to function like this. Mm-hmm. And that's where a process-based classification, I think, is useful if it's rooted in how the channels actually behave. Because then you get hints to behavior based on the morphology, which is actually the simplest thing to look at and classify. Right, I want to take a little diversion on something you just said. Because equifinality, I'm a modeler, and equifinality is huge in modeling. Because the idea is that you can get the right answer in the wrong way. It's, right, you, get, right. you have these non-unique solutions. Just and, like politics. Right, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and you can you can crank one parameter way too high and crank the other parameter way too low and calibrate, but then your model doesn't have generality. Right, right. I've never heard about that in geomorphology before, but is what you're saying that there are actually multiple ways you can get the same form? And if you don't cast that in terms of the process, then your predictions will be incorrect. Yeah, that's a big challenge. And it basically means that if you're seeking to understand how landscapes form or how topography forms, If you build it from the process level up to the form, you can have some confidence in either the potential for generality or the uniqueness of a solution or whatever you're actually trying to look at. Whereas if you go from the the form and infer process, you may get it completely wrong. Mm. And I can't tell you how many studies of Martian geomorphology (laughs) I've seen that problem arise in where people will go, oh, this looks like an ice flow morphology when it had nothing to do with an ocean or ice flows. It had a whole different set of processes that led to the same forms. Uh, I did a paper once with actually an undergraduate who who started the project as an undergraduate research problem looking at forms on Mars that look a lot like sand dunes. And they'd always been interpreted as sand dunes. But when you actually get into the imagery, and and we got into the high-resolution NASA imagery to sort of start looking at this, and you could see things like layers that were in the original source material that go up and over these dune forms, showing you they were carved into an already hard substrate rather than formed by a loose substrate. So, so they couldn't have been just sand dunes that got cemented because there were original stratigraphy at an angle going up mm-hmm. and down through these these forms. And so that's a good example of equifinality where you know, rather than aeolian processes building these features, it was aeolian processes that carved those features, oh, the exact opposite interpretation. Right, but the form looked similar. They looked so similar. They'd always been interpreted as sand dunes. Why? Because they looked like them. <laughs> and, and we actually had trouble publishing that paper yeah. because the first couple journals we sent it to, the reviews all said, everybody knows these are sand dunes. What are you talking about? And we're like, read the paper. Yeah. We put the evidence together that shows you why they are not sand dunes. But that's a comment on peer review as well. So yeah, that, <laughs> we have many opinions on yeah. that as well. So what's a forced morphology? In the terminology that John and I adopted, a forced morphology particularly applies to things that happen in the presence of a lot of wood. When I started working at the University of Washington back in the early 90s, on-river morphology stuff motivated by looking at what was happening to salmon populations in the region, one of the things that became pretty clear was that large woody debris can really mess around with channel morphology, which was fascinating, was Mm -hmm. super cool. But it also meant that if you were thinking about interpreting channel morphology through a process-based perspective, you had to be sort of careful in terms of thinking about, well, how much are you talking about what the wood's doing or what the channel would do without wood? And so what we started to recognize is that in a lot of the channels in the Pacific Northwest, 
in these sort of medium medium sized streams, sort okay. of plain bed to pool riffle sized streams, so okay. gravel bedded streams. If there was a lot of wood in it, the morphology could be really complex. But if you took the wood out, it could go to a flume. Some of the ones, if you took the wood out, it would go to a step pool channel. Mm-hmm. Some, if you took the wood out, it would go to a classic Leopoldian pool and riffle channel. Interesting. And so the forced morphology was an idea that, oh, you can actually get a channel that has the characteristics in terms of pool frequency of a pool and riffle channel by throwing a lot of wood into it. It could be essentially masking an underlying morphology of what the the wood-free channel would look like. In the absence of wood, these would fall in different parts of that classification system we were talking about. But in the presence of wood, they kind of converge to a similar morphology. Exactly. That's exactly. And that has implications for, say, you're going into stream restaurants and you're looking at um, different parts of a channel network trying to think of, well, what would it look like with a lot of wood or what would the wood-free morphology be like? You're looking at sort of the impact of, of, say, riparian forest loss. They'd have very different potential responses to either the introduction or the removal of wood. And and we thought that was fascinating because we couldn't find that concept actually sort of in the literature out there in terms of geomorphologists looking at, well, what does the amount of wood in a stream do to its basic morphology and how we think about it? So basically had to put the forced morphologies, the forced step pool and forced pool riffle morphologies into the classification because we were working in wood-rich environments and also in wood degraded environments and trying to understand what the effects of forestry practices in particular had been in the Pacific Northwest. And we were able to show that there's been a loss of an awful lot of salmon habitat, particularly pools that wood force helps to force, that you wouldn't really recognize if you didn't have historical data on pool abundance or on wood loading and abundance. And that the basic character of a lot of salmon streams really changed historically based on what we did, what what people did to the amount of wood in rivers and streams. Those forest morphologies were part of our way of thinking about how those connections actually worked. Yeah. Which is a good transition to there's another chunk of literature that you have. One of your most famous papers looks at log jams or large wood on one of the largest unregulated rivers in the country, Queets River? The Queets, yes. The Queets. And I think the history of the Queets is really interesting. Can you just tell us a little bit about why the Queets isn't degraded? <laughs> yeah. Well, the Queets River is one of the rivers that flows out of Olympic National Park, and it's in Olympic National Park for most of, not quite all, all right. but most of its length. Uh, and Olympic National Park, uh, you know, got sort of swept up in the, the early 20th century, if I recall right, National Park efforts to provide some pristine habitat. If you look at the shape of the boundaries of a lot of the national parks in in the Northwest, they're drawn to avoid the big river floodplains where, what? Oh, you really? guessed it, the really big trees were. Oh. Why? Because those were highly desirable by the timber industry. But the Queets was one where actually most of the floodplain was left in the park. So Tim Abbey, a grad student who, who worked on that project, who really pioneered the work on the geomorphic effects of big log jams in big wooded rivers, realized that, well, we realized that the Queets was a natural laboratory for understanding how did natural log jams actually form in the Northwest prior to the river cleaning efforts of the late 19th and early 20th century. It's almost like a relic, like a sturgeon. Yeah, like time a, capsule. Yeah, like a time capsule yeah. of what it, what it was like. Do you have any idea how many natural wood structures you investigated or... No. No. <laughs> no. I mean, Tim investigated more than I did. Yeah, he yeah. spent, you know, several field seasons out there. Mm-hmm. I went out there a number of times with him and canoed up and down, you know, didn't canoe up, canoed down the yeah. river. <laughs> and there were a lot of really big log jams yeah, there. Right. I mean, so he he looked at thousands of them, I'm sure. And what we tried to do is develop a typology mm-hmm. of the way different 
kind of log jams set up in different parts of the river system, kind of like the river classification, right. where if you go down to the system, you know, up at the headwater channels, you've got big trees falling into small channels. They don't move very far, right? <laughs> the river goes around, the stream goes around the tree. Yeah, there's just never enough power to move it. Never enough power to move it. And, and you can quantify that, and the yeah. trees are kind of jackstrawed in the channel, and the channel goes around, you get this nice amphibian habitat and so on. But the further down the system you go, the rivers get bigger, and the way the trees move and interact with one another changes systematically. You know, in the middle parts of the reaches, the big trees that still have root wads don't move very far, but you get medium-sized trees coming down and piling up on them, and they can, like, block the whole valley bottom. You get to the really big floodplain, and even the old-growth trees are floating down the river during oh, big yeah. floods. And that's, right. you know, if you want to see something scary to a boater, <laughs> go out during a big storm on the Olympic yeah. Peninsula on one wow. of these rivers like the Queets or the Ho, yeah. and watch the old-growth timber go down the river. It's really quite educational because the ones that still have the root wads on them, they'll be, like, floating down with the root, you know, root wad downstream first, they hit a bar, the root wad grounds out, that the bowl, the you know, the main part of the tree, <laughs> then spins around ninety degrees and it grounds out and digs itself in like an anchor. And you can you can watch it in real time if you're dumb enough to be out there in a big flood like we are. It's pretty astounding. Yeah, that's fantastic. But the whole architecture of, of the log jams varies down to that system. And that's what Tim did his PhD on. So I used to assume that any sort of wood or log structure was pretty ephemeral. That was kind of my conceptual model of this. But it's this work that you and Tim did on that really got me to kind of reconsider that prior a little. What kind of timescales are associated with these jams or the river morphologies associated with them? It really varies. You know, in the smaller channels, it's probably hundreds of years on the outside. But what Tim was able to document on the Queets was in the main floodplain, where you have the river that's moving, it migrates at a pace that he was able to document would suggest that the river ought to sweep back and forth across this floodplain. If you use the average rate of bank erosion, it ought to take about a century. We have these thousand-year-old trees all over the valley bottom. In theory, that land should have been worked over ten times. Yeah, in theory, that should just be like all the second-growth forests around Washington, sort of the early successional stage forests all the time. Right. But it's not. (laughs) And so that's the first clue, right? Okay, it's yeah. like, okay, something else is going on there. Yeah. What he was able to do is he was able to go and look at some of the big log jams and get in and carbon date some of the big key member logs, the foundational mm. pieces of those log jams. And then also go in and core the trees that were on the floodplain growing right in the lee of those log okay. jams. So just in the protected zone. Like the shadow of the log jam. Exactly. In the velocity shadow of the log jam, where you know, you'd imagine sediment would pile mm-hmm. up and then it builds up enough that a tree starts growing on it and then it's a stable environment. You can get a tree growing there. And what we were able to do is basically close the gap to show that many of the trees that were growing right behind these big log jams were just a little younger than the carbon dates for the big logs that were foundational for the log jams, suggesting that they'd been there for up to 1,200, I think 1,200 years is the oldest ones we found. That's so millennia-scale yeah. log jam stability, which explained why you could get big old-growth timber on these dynamic-as-hell valley bottoms because you had these protected zones where the channel would just sweep by it and then essentially a vulse jump to another spot. That's Instead right. of sweeping, it was a vulsing, and you had these hard points that were, were protected. So That's a whole different ecology and a whole different model of the oh ecology of these valley bottoms. And so we kind of jump past the point that like hundreds of years for like standard structures, but then you've got this, this process where these log jams that form in the river eventually get abandoned 
And then the river finds them again, but they're still protective. And so you get these islands of old growth. Yep. That's phenomenal. Yeah, exactly. That was one of the funnest things that came out of Jim's thesis. <laughs> it was other than canoeing down the Queen's yeah, River, right, which has right. to be the top of the list. You can always tell if there's something in a paper that's really fun because you can remember where you're sitting when you read it. And I do remember <laughs> where I was sitting when I read that. <laughs> so the question that everyone's going to want me to ask you is, what are some of the river restoration implications of these kind of parts of your work, the, the different classification systems and the, and the large wood work that you've done? Probably one of the biggest implications of it, in my view, is that when you think about a river restoration project, the context is really the most important thing. You know, don't just go take a model off of the shelf because somebody visually identified this channel looks like a, a so-and-so channel. So this is what you should do to it. You really need to understand both the, the spatial and the temporal context of the channel. So where is it in the drainage basin? What kind of a process template would you expect to be the most important one for that spot? And how has it changed historically? Like if you're really talking restoration as opposed to some form of minor rehabilitation, then defining what the target is, you know, what you think you could restore it to mm-hmm. is critically important. With the class I teach in the fall, uh, sophomore level class, that's sort of like applied geomorphology. And we get in a little bit on river restoration stuff. And I like to show examples of places where people, you know, tried to take a braided channel and turn it into a perfect sine wave. And then mm-hmm. what happened in the first high flow? It became a braided channel mm-hmm. again. I mean, th- those kind of errors, you know, are, aren't too hard to figure out. That's right. But from a restoration perspective, the, the overwhelming importance of the first thing you want to do is understand the context of the, yeah. of the actual channel before you start thinking you know exactly how to restore it. So the work that you've done, I realized it was a while ago, but the work that you've done that's been most influential for me is the work that you and Dr. Ruffington did on incipient motion. Can you just tell us a little bit about what incipient motion means and how we quantify it? Yeah, sure. That paper was really a labor of love on John's part. He was confronted with the question of uh, what kind of calibration parameter, what shields parameter Mm -hmm. do you use for trying to calculate what it takes to start moving gravel or or sediment on the bed of a river? And so incipient motion is the idea of what what does it take? What kind of flow does it take to start moving stuff? What kind of shear stresses does it take to start moving stuff in the bed of a river? So what John did is he went... And he got all the data he could find at that point, and he was pretty damn thorough. Um, I mean, the table alone. When it's I two saw thirds th- of the paper. Oh, right? When I saw the page charges for that table, I was like, Ah, do we really want to publish this? And then I realized that yeah, no one should ever have to compile that again. That's right. That's <laughs> right. right. So um, I bit the bullet, paid the page charges, and it was a very eye-opening thing mm-hmm. because when we think of incipient motion, and and, and the way I had been teaching it up to that point. Yeah. Is, you know, take the Shields equation and you say, okay, at this point, the bed starts moving. But one of the eye-openers from John's compilation was that if you go out and look at the way different people have defined incipient motion, mm-hmm. not everybody did it the same way. Yeah, And you come up with different calibration parameters, different Shields parameters based on the different styles of how people are looking at it. So are you looking at when the first grain of sand moves at all? Or are you looking at widespread bed mobility? Mm-hmm. Or wholesale bed mobility, yeah. you would have sort of different parameters. And the literature was basically full of studies that had defined things in different ways and measured things in different ways. And it turns out that things like, you know, how loose the bed is matters. The shape of the grains, the density of the grains. There's all kinds of things that actually sort of go into influencing it. And my sort of real takeaway in looking over John's shoulder on putting all that together was that, well, it depends. He came up with ranges of values for both sort of the first kind of motion and then general bed mobility, mm-hmm. if I'm recalling right. But again, like the context question on river restoration, you know, when one's using sediment transport equations that have a shields parameter, deciding on what value to use 
is basically making assumptions, has embedded assumptions as to what kind of incipient motion are you really talking about. And so it sort of is wise, I guess, to not blindly select a parameter, Mm -hmm. but to intentionally go to that literature and go, oh, okay, I'm picking this value because it is most appropriate to the problem that I'm trying to look at. And that could be very different if you're trying to gauge the sediment flux out of a river system or whether you're trying to gauge what kind of flows are commensurate with the survivability of fish eggs buried in the gravel. Right, you know, sure. Because different degrees of mobility are going to matter to oh, those two just different looks. Interesting. So it's not just that mobility was a, a word with semantic range for how we've developed these data, but it's actually what does mobility actually mean for how we apply them? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that was an eye-opener to me because before we, before John you know, dug into that and I sort of look, looked over his shoulder in trying to put that all together, I was thinking about it. Oh, it's a number. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, that's where I live because, again, I'm a numerical modeler. I apply these equations. Meyer Peer Mueller has a shields parameter of 0.048, Larson Copeland 0.039. What would you say to modelers about those numbers? You know, eventually, if you're going to put one in a model, you're going to pick a number. Yeah. So pick wisely, but be aware that there's other things buried in that. That's right. So, you know, we view that as sort of a calibration parameter. Right. But you may need a calibration parameter to parameterize your calibration (laughs) parameter, (laughs) depending on, you know, which buried assumptions are in the value you're using and what system you're actually trying to model. I think John and I basically published sort of ranges of values that we found as typical in that paper. But once you be thoughtful about sort of which value you're using or use a range to try and go, oh, okay, well, at the low end, it's this, at the high end is that, and you could use that to characterize a range of predicted values. It really depends on, you know, why you're modeling and what you're trying to actually assess or demonstrate on a particular study. Okay. So back to your books. I can't think of another fluvial geomorphologist who's published multiple popular books. Why did you start writing books? Uh, There's a complicated answer to that. (laughs) Um, One, I enjoy writing, which should be a requirement for a writer, because if you're going to spend a lot of time doing something, you might as well enjoy (laughs) it. That's right. And most of the time I enjoy it. I, I will admit not always. But King of Fish was the first book that I wrote. And I wrote it for really sort of two reasons. One of them is sort of a highbrow reason in the sense that as I looked into studying how human actions had influenced mountain river systems in ways that affected salmon abundance, because mm-hmm. that's what I was originally funded to do here at the University of Washington, okay. I realized that there was a lot of stuff that people didn't know about in terms of the history of what had gone into landscape change in ways that had affected salmon populations. And I was being asked to advise on salmon recovery strategies in the Northwest. And one of the questions I started asking people at the highest political levels in the state was, anybody look at New England? Anybody look at England? You know, it's like, what happened in these Mm -hmm. other regions that had had large salmon populations that no longer did? Were there lessons we could learn from that that would be pertinent to thinking about how not to repeat that Mm -hmm. in, in the Northwest? So I was very interested in the history of understanding that because I got blank stares, you yeah, know, from people I'd bring that up with out here. Right. It's like, oh, there were who knew there were salmon in New England, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, the people in New England knew. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, and so at the hybrid, at the higher level, you know, I wanted to learn that history to basically understand whether there would be something in it that would be useful for advice in the Northwest uh, on the rivers I'd been working on around mm-hmm. here. Um, and the the other level of it was that I had a knock on my door one day. By from a woman who was an editor from a publisher who was here visiting a colleague who owed her a book manuscript <laughs> that he hadn't finished yet, <laughs> and he was trying to you know uh, brush her off. I guess is yeah, the right, right way to put right. it. And she was basically well asked, okay, well you know while you're 
thinking of things, do, do you have any colleagues who might be interested in writing a book? And he, I had just ghostwritten a paper for him that got into science oh, nice. on the Permian Triaxis, Triassic extinction that it wasn't really ghostwritten. I wrote the first, I basically put, pulled it all together after we'd been talking about it for a while, That's and nice. but said, look, this is, it was your idea originally, I wrote the paper, but you'd be the first author yeah, and sure. we'll get it, but here's your draft. Right, right. And so he was like, I've done that. you can write. <laughs> <laughs> so he pointed her my direction, this woman knocks on my door and says, have you ever thought about writing a, you know, a, a book for non-technical audiences? Yeah. And I was like, well, yeah, sure, who hasn't, but you know, I haven't really done anything. Mm-hmm. So she was like, well, what would you write about? Mm-hmm. And I pitched... A couple ideas. Well, yeah. the first one I pitched was an idea about the history of soil erosion. Okay. I think her quote was, you write a, want to write a book about dirt? <laughs> what else do you got? <laughs> and so I, I had just read uh, Mark Kurlansky's wonderful book, Cod, about yes, the cod that, fishery yes, in New England. Right. I thought it was a fabulous book. And so I basically said, well, you know, I'd like to write a history of salmon because yeah. nobody's done that yet as far as I could tell. Turned out there had been, but yeah. I just hadn't read it. <laughs> and she was like, oh, if you write that, I'll publish it. Oh, wow. And so I was like, Oh, I guess you called my bluff. Uh, <laughs> so I, I packed up my dog, went to Boise for a month, because John Buffington offered me an office at okay. um, University of Idaho at their Great. campus there yeah. for, to do a little writing. And I got the lion's share of it done in a month of, of intensive writing. In a month? In, in a month. It was intense. It took me probably a year to write the book, but you know, a lot of the pulling together of what was the research. Writing's nonlinear. Yeah. Very nonlinear yeah, right. and very iterative. So what really got me into it was sort of that combined, the opportunity that presented itself, but the interest in in the history and combining the history and science on questions that are policy relevant mm-hmm. uh, was really what got me into it. And that's really kind of the thread that runs through pretty much all my books is that there's a little bit of science, a little bit of history, a little bit of either intellectual or policy relevance, try to put it all together in a way that tells a good story. So you did eventually get someone to publish The History of Dirt. <laughs> so this was my introduction to your work, Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations. And in that book, you make a causal connection between slavery in the United States and river sedimentation that actually changed the way I think about some of the data that are on my machine. Mm. Um, mm. Do you remember that connection? Can you describe it for us? Well, you know, when you look at the, the antebellum South, the pre-Civil yeah. War South, and you look at the state of the land, there was a lot of people complaining about gullies and erosion and the degradation of soil fertility. And one of the key issues that made slavery such a make-or-break issue in the South was the economic dependence on that particular model of farming. Interesting. And a lot of it can relate to what happens if, if you grow tobacco in particular and you clear a patch of forest— it was a very erosive style of farming, which meant that you could only work a, a given patch of land for a few years before you had to clean another patch of land off. Mm-hmm. That's a big part of what led to plantation agriculture, sort of large-scale plantations, because to keep a little piece of it in production all the time, you needed a lot of land so you could just keep moving and clearing new land. And slave labor was, the, unfortunately, the, the way that it was practiced in that area in those days. But the economic reliance on that style of farming is what made it such a make-or-break issue in terms of how slavery would be permitted or not in the United, in the United States. Because the South is economically very much dependent on it. The style of farming in the North is very different, mm-hmm. uh, in part because of different size farms and growing different things. They were growing more uh, diversified food crops rather than sort of large-scale monoculture staples. Mm-hmm. 
And one of the things I noticed in looking at the history of the agricultural history of the American South is how closely it resembled what happened in Rome a thousand years earlier, where Roman agriculture went from small-scale diversified polycultures to large-scale slave-run monocultures just after the time of the Carthaginian Wars, the mm-hmm. Punic Wars, I think That's they're called, right. if I'm remembering right. And what drove that? Bringing a lot of slaves from Carthage into Rome to work the fields of Rome. Farms got big. They got focused on monocultures. Why? Because that's what you could grow with slave labor. Mm. And so there's parallels there. That it, you know, And the whole run-up to that, the role that degradation of the land and farming styles played in the run-up to the Civil War was something I had never been taught in high school or college. Uh, I hadn't really realized until I got into looking at it. Now, of course, that's not the only issue that was going on, but there was this sort of economic connection with, that it helps to explain why it was such a political issue at the time. So th- that's another example like the Mesopotamian and Egyptian agriculture that I think one of the threads that I do see through all of your books is the way that kind of people and the land interact. And if you're degrading one, you're probably degrading the other. And there's this feedback between those. Yeah. In fact, the most recent book uh, called What's Your Food Ate? How to Heal, to heal Our Land <laughs> and that. Reclaim Our Health. I love that name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was fun. We, there's a lot of arguments that go into figuring out what the title of a new yeah. book's going to be. But when we landed on What's Your Food Ate, Ann and I were both like, yep, that's, <laughs> that's it. it. That's it. <laughs> then we argued about the subtitle for a long time. Right. And you wrote that with Ann, your wife. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I had the good fortune to marry a biologist, Anne Beclay, who has co-authored two books with me, The Hidden Half of Nature and the new one, What's Your Food Ate, which has really helped sort of expand the way I think, because with her biological lens, it's it's a great compliment to those of us who focus mostly on sediment and erosion stuff. But yeah, that the new one looks quite explicitly at how the way we treat the land affects the health of the soil, how that then affects the health of our crops Mm. um, and the productivity of our agricultural land, the health of our livestock. And then what it means for what gets into the human food supply in terms of the mineral micronutrients, the vitamins, the phytochemicals, the antioxidants and anti-inflammatories that foods can have a lot of or very little of, depending on how they're raised, and what that means for human health, and particularly the management of chronic diseases, turns out to be, I think, much bigger than most people think or have thought. And that's what we tried to put together in in the new book. That's great. What's LUS? Lus. Uh, Lus is uh, really good soil. (laughs) (laughs) Where does it come from? Where does it come from? You know, there's various arguments over the etymology of the words. I've seen some people argue that Lus means loose in German, so like a loose soil is good. I've seen other people say, no, that's not it. So I'm not going to pretend that I know the etymology of it. But what Lus soils are, soils that are sort of a mix of silt, sand, and clay. It's kind of the Goldilocks soil in a way, (laughs) right? It's it's got, I I think, less than 20% clay and maybe half silt or something as close to a definition of it. But that's why we rely on the soil triangle, right? right. So you can find where you are on it. But list soils are, have that combination of they're fairly well-drained, but not so well-drained they don't retain any moisture. Okay. And they have enough clay that they have exchangeable cations, but not so much clay that they're impossible to work yeah. or to plant. So they're kind of the, the Goldilocks soil. And many of the list soils around the world are a result of what happened really during the last ice age, yeah. where glaciers in the polar regions in the, in the northern hemisphere scraped off all the regolith, topsoil, subsoil, and weathered rock, scraped it down to sort of bare rock, which you can see on the Scandinavian Shield or northern Canada if you fly over and look out and go, oh, it's like, it's all lakes and rock. Because the soil all got scraped and moved to the south. (laughs) It all got pushed to Kansas. It got bulldozed (laughs) down to Kansas and and vicinity. Yeah. 
and it got blown around by winds in the front of the ice sheet. And so you have these wonderfully rich wind-deposited soils that have the texture that's just tailor-made for growing mm-hmm. plants. And a lot of the world's grasslands are on these very productive soils just south of the last glacial limit, whether it's in uh, Ukraine mm-hmm. or across Russia and Kazakhstan uh, into Manchuria and China or the American Midwest. You know, the world's big bread baskets That's are right. built on these soils that were piled fairly deeply and then had uh, you know, generations of herbivores grazing on it, mm-hmm. manuring them, and in building up the very organic matter-rich soils, mollusols. So Lys is like you know, one of Earth's gifts to humanity <laughs> in terms of great places to grow food, but they're also really erosive because if it was deposited by the wind, you know, if you take off the grassroots that are holding it together and then blow wind across it, it leaves. Mm-hmm. And so you're foreshadowing this, but you know why is Lust kind of such a big character in the history of soil in America? Well, Lust is a big character in the history of soil in America because it's responsible for the Dust Bowl. Yeah, right. <laughs> and you know there had been something like twelve or thirteen comparable droughts to the Dust Bowl okay. in the several thousand years before the Dust Bowl, oh, okay. without all the soil blowing away. Yeah, right. But what happened once we plowed the plains up, and then we had the next drought? That's a good example of sort of the condition of the land setting the stage for something that really impacted the human population. I mean, a lot of the population in Oklahoma and the parts of Kansas that were most highly impacted by the Dust Bowl, people didn't stay there. They ended up going to California, as was written about in The Grapes of Wrath. And so it's a good example of, of how, you know, it's not so much the drought that did it. It was the combination of the drought on a landscape that had been prepared to be vulnerable based on human activity. So speaking of your books with excellent titles, what is the hidden half of nature? (laughs) The hidden half of nature is that part of nature that's out of sight and out of mind for two reasons. One, it's below ground, so Uh it's soil life. And the other is that it's microscopic, it's microbial life, bacteria and fungi. And so we can't see them with our own senses. And we don't think about it because it's below ground. Most people don't think about the life in the soil, mm-hmm. but the few of us who think about those things yeah. realize that it's really important for maintaining the fertility of land. And Anne and I came up with the title, The Hidden Half of Nature, to really try and characterize that part of nature that was really integral to building soil fertility, but that was out of sight, out of mind. And every bit as complicated and nuanced in its ecological relationships with one another as the plants and pollinators we see above ground where we, you know, we can see them with our own senses, we can, you know, we can smell the flowers, we can watch the bees go around, we can understand those connections. Those same kind of partnerships are happening below ground in the hidden half of nature, where until very, very recently, science was not really aware of the connections. And yet it turns out it's pretty important for thinking about how do you sustain agricultural productivity? How do you sort of solve the problems I wrote about in dirt? You know, it depends on understanding microbial ecology and feeding it in ways that promote building soil health and the health of plants, animals, and people. The dirt, the way that you and I kind of were trained to think about it, is actually the framework for an ecosystem. It is, exactly, yeah. So I bet there are plenty of scientists who would like to write a popular book, 
But given the quality of prose in the journals, I suspect there are a few that could. No one ever really told me how important writing was going to be to my career. But I suspected you had thoughts on the state of scientific writing, and then you kind of showed your hand a little bit in the early pages of uh, The Hidden Half of Nature. Oh, you noticed. <laughs> yeah, right? This isn't a writing podcast. I listen to lots of writing podcasts. This isn't one of them. But everyone who listens to this podcast writes. And so I just kind of Maybe could you just tell us a little bit about how you developed as a writer, and um, maybe we could talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. You know, I've always enjoyed writing. I've never found it to be particularly easy, right. but, uh, you know, when, when it flows, it flows well, and I don't mind going back and editing stuff. And, you know, and I was writing short stories in high school that weren't any good, but were attempts at trying to basically learn how to write. And when I started uh, at an engineering firm, I worked for two years for a geotechnical engineering firm right. before I went to grad school. And when the second firm I worked for discovered that I could actually write, mm. they split my job into, okay, you're the, I was the grunt geologist, right? Oh, I'd go wow. out and do the basic field work to try and figure out what the engineers were going to fix. But then they would let me rewrite their engineering reports because I could basically take their engineering prose and just make it a little more client-friendly. Yeah, right. And, and I enjoyed doing it. It was fine. You know, in terms of general advice to writers, the basics that I think I would offer is to think of it as a craft, kind of like playing guitar. You know, unless you're one of those truly gifted people right. who can just do it out of the gate. And those yeah, people right. exist. I'm jealous as hell. You know, it's basically putting in the time and, the, and attention to the craft to try and grow it as a craft and really viewing it as such. You know, I think in terms of writing the various books I've done, I think I've grown as a writer and it's been fun to do but yeah if you always look at it as a craft and that you're just you try and make it as good as possible and you know trust your editor it's kind of like the peer review process we all know it can be frustrating as hell when that idiot of a reviewer like says something that you you just like go like how could you have read it that way or sometimes like why didn't i think of that that's right that's right it's about half and half for me (laughs) well and that's the trick whether with an editor or a peer reviewer is to basically look at it I'll usually get, whether it's something back from an editor now or from a, a, a view of a paper, I'll like read the reviews and I put it aside for like you know a few days and let my blood unboil and you know sort of calm down and kind of go, oh, what are the things I can take away and actually use to improve what I wrote? And sort of shed the, oh, you're attacking my writing kind of thing, because that's never productive to think about. Whether or not the reviewer was you know, being a snotty ass or not. <laughs> That's exactly what I do. I usually read it before I go on a run because because I just, I, I know I'll have all this like anger and negative energy. I'll go on a run and then I won't touch it for a week. Right. And over the course of that week, I'll kind of let the critique sink in a little bit and I'll be able to start to triage them right. about what's a good corrective and what was probably just they misunderstood the argument right or or what i blow yeah that's <laughs> you know, right. which also that's happens right. that's um, right. <laughs> do i need to start over <laughs> right or or take a left turn or yeah. or add another piece it sounds like implicit in that answer is that there's kind of two pieces to developing any craft one is repetitions and the other is coaching yes yeah and and also trying to divorce one's ego from the assessment process, That's right? right? Cuz right. if you take criticism personally, yeah. you're not going to grow. You, the product is not going to grow as a result of yeah. it. You're going to be writing defensively to sort of shore up your defenses or walls. I actually think one of the things that helped me develop as a writer in the popular arena was 
doing so many peer-reviewed papers, because I was so used to getting beat up in peer-reviewed, oh, but yeah. at the time I connected with a commercial publisher where an editor can have a fairly active hand in helping to shape a narrative, I'd kind of gotten over you know, being defensive about that yeah. and really tried to keep my eye on, oh, how does this improve it? Well, David Montgomery, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you. Pleasure to talk to you. I appreciate David taking the time for that remarkable conversation. And I just appreciate both his technical and popular work. One of the things I didn't mention in this episode is my family has also enjoyed David's books. My 14-year-old daughter still talks about the chapter in Dirt that explores the role of worms in soil formation. It totally captured her imagination. I've provided links to the papers we talked about and his books in the episode description and the podcast website, plus links to Big Dirt. Next episode, we talk with the formidable Dr. Marcelo Garcia, Chair of Hydraulics at the University of Illinois and the Director of the VentiChild Laboratory in an episode that covers more topics than I can list. We ostensibly explored the content, contributors, and formation of the American Society of Engineers Sedimentation Handbook, which he edited, but the conversation covered a surprising breadth of the history of sediment science and somehow took us to the geopolitics of late 20th century Argentina and USSR in the most compelling sediment superhero origin story we've had on this podcast. It's a fantastic conversation that I think you're going to enjoy. This season, like those before it, was funded by the Corps of Engineers Regional Sediment Management Program, an R&D program committed to smarter, more sustainable sediment management on the watershed scale. David Perkey leads that program. These are informal and sometimes experimental conversations, and the views expressed do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers or the center or institutions of the guests or host. Mike Loretto is back, editing and mixing this season. The rest of the music from this episode are from Big Dirt's new album, Folk the Fundamentals, including the excellent lead track, Around the Sun. Thanks to David and the band for letting us use these. I'm Stanford Gibson, the sediment transport specialist at the Corps' Hydrologic Engineering Center, and on the HEC RAS team. Thanks for listening.